Was it birth or death, great sorrow or great joy that filled the hospital room? It was surely at least all of those things. That Robert would soon die was a fact. That his father was recently reborn was another fact. This pastoral encounter happened a number of years ago now. Robert had been diagnosed with AIDS before effective drug therapies were developed. Receiving this diagnosis, he had a sweaty internal debate about whether to tell his parents. He knew it would be an extremely difficult conversation. As it turned out, his prediction was correct. Although he hadn't really expected his father's response, who, after a long silence, said quietly, you are no son of mine, and hung up the phone. Over the next couple of years, his mother came to visit once or twice, but it wasn't until Robert had finally reached the end of his life that his father showed up in his hospital room. And then, as surprisingly as he had cut Robert off, he now gently leaned over, kissed him on the forehead, and said, I love you, son. I was a witness to this quiet reconciliation. The room took on an unusual character. It's hard to describe, really. Death and birth, sorrow and joy, all full to the brim and overflowing with the mysteries of life and love. One friend of Robert's who heard of this bedside reconciliation said cynically, too little, too late. But that wasn't Robert's experience. His father kept vigil until he died. They had a chance to drink from the same well for a short time. As it turned out, Robert had his own confessions to make, his own accounts with life to settle. The length of their relational drought was less important than the depth of the waters they drew upon in those last days. And Robert's father wept when his son died. Both Robert and his father had been baptized as infants, but it struck me that the full force of the spiritual gift was only just recently received in the nick of time. It was a powerful bit of business, I tell you. I've learned over the years that the depths of meaning within the rituals of our faith are rarely fully appreciated at the time they take place, even for the very well-intentioned person. Robert's father had no idea what would be asked of him 27 years after the birth and baptism of his son. No parent really knows what's up ahead. They don't even know what's up ahead for themselves. But baptism stakes a claim that's larger than any life circumstance. It's big, really big. You know, I wonder what a first-timer makes of all the goings-on in a church liturgy like baptism, someone for whom our worship may seem like they've entered some strange alternate reality. The imagery of water, the highly organized activity laced with insider religious language and symbols, how clergy are normally garbed, all the falderall and whatnot. Maybe it's more transparent than I imagine. 
Perhaps an instinctual drive kicks in that resonates with the mystical dimensions of life and death and love that are captured in the ritual. I suspect that's so to some degree. I think that's what often provokes tears when baptismal waters flow. The spiritual realm is accessed even for the uninitiated observer. I've seen that many times over. A powerful, instinctual understanding that our true identities are uncovered when our name is spoken and we're formally claimed by God and our human community. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased, is the way Jesus heard it. As the story is told, this is the fulcrum event in his life, the moment describing before and after. Those years ago in that hospital room, something very deep was revealed by the lost father's return when he kissed his son's forehead. Something was accessed that touched the core of existence. There was a time when Robert's father held him in his arms and a minister called Robert's name in baptism, making him God's own, marking him as God's own. It would take several decades for dad to realize his primary role in the matter, but finally, finally he became the voice of God when he kissed Robert and said, I love you, son. At its heart, Christianity is absolutely unequivocal about the centrality of love. Love is the essence of life. It is the one thing that has the breadth and depth to fully embrace suffering and death. It calls forth from human hearts excellent things like courage and integrity and the ability to suffer for righteousness' sake. It's the ground of authentic hope and the agency of faith. The way our scriptures speak of it, love is the medium through which all things have been created, including each one of us, each one cherished beyond time and measure. But now, while most of us gladly affirm this lovely idea today, in our heart of hearts, let's be honest, we might not really believe it. We can't quite believe that we are that valuable in the grand scheme of things. Our routine associations and experiences lead us to believe just the opposite, that our true worth is suspect. Some listeners today grew up in churches that taught them they were irredeemably lost. And even the most successful among us can be driven by the secret, oftentimes unconscious conviction that no amount of success will in the end prove our true worth. What is the true driver of all our drivenness anyway? Do we actually know? What are we trying to prove? And for whom are we trying to prove it? Do we know where we're headed and why? Insidiously, while doubting our own worth, we're quite certain many, if not most others, aren't worthy either. This corrosive suspicion lies in our core, a corruption of our soul. It poisons our relationships and feeds on fear. We see that everywhere in our nation and around the world today. 
Baptismal waters seek to reach this deep place. Fortunately, these waters are opportunistic, seeping down through the tiniest of cracks in our formidable defenses over the course of our lifetimes. It was fear that kept Robert's father away for a lot of years. Fear of what? Well, fear the world wasn't organized the way he thought it should be. Fear of his ignorance, fear of the lack of control, fear of exposure, fear of guilt by association, fear of his own inadequacies, fear of his own secrets. The list of potential fears is nearly limitless, isn't it? You can sense them within yourself if you're brave. Oh my, be brave. Do your spiritual homework. That Robert's father projected his fear onto his son is no mystery. Don't all of us know something about projecting our inadequacy and vulnerabilities onto others? Don't we do that all of the time? Isn't that the root cause of so many of our disastrous relational problems? Don't we see evidence of this in our nation today? Don't we see it in our nasty fear-baiting politics? What is fear's antidote? Robert's father finally named and claimed it. In our gospel lesson, Jesus' father names it as well. Long before any sophisticated theological formulations were devised explaining the relationship between Jesus and God, his friends knew that the best way to understand it was as an intimate bond of love. That's what the witnesses experienced at the Jordan River. Those that stuck around would see how Jesus bore witness to this loving relationship over the next years of his life. And wouldn't the power brokers of his day project their fear onto him in a dramatic display of political scapegoating? John had it right by calling everyone to the river's edge where the healing and cleansing waters could seep into their corroded souls, where the Spirit of God could do the mystical work we can't accomplish on our own. Though ritual baptism happens only once for each of us in our tradition, the Spirit works on us the rest of our lives, right up to the moment we draw our last breath. Robert's father finally discovered the truth of it. Friends, there's no more important thing going on anywhere today than you're hearing either for the first time or the hundredth time the deep, deep truth at the core of all things. God whispering in your ear that you, you are loved beyond your wildest imaginings.